about right, doesn't it? In the, uh, toward the end of the 60s, is that when the, uh, the, the rumors about you being dead surfaced? Do you remember that? Do you remember, yeah. remember how, how that started? What, what were your feelings about that? It, what happened? Yeah, my feelings. Um, yeah, no, what happened was we did a cover for a record called Abbey Road, and we... <laughs> even the cover gets applause. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, and the idea was to walk across the crossing, and I showed up that day with sandals, flip-flops, and so, uh, it was so hot, that I kicked them off and walked across barefooted. So this started some rumor that because he was barefooted, he's dead. <laughs> I couldn't see the connection myself. No, I don't... <laughs> It seems like a long, death. slow, difficult death. Mm. <laughs> Being barefooted will kill you. Scorched feet. Uh, uh, and and, and, and what do you, how do you manage something like that? Because it was a, a global rumor. And, and yeah. I mean, you know, I just, I just laughed at it and knew it was just because of the fame and the craziness. It was an American DJ, so you guys are to blame. Yeah. <laughs> Not you personally, but... Now, the thing is, you know, I, I just laughed it off, but it was a little bit strange because people did start looking at me like... Yeah. Is it is it him yeah. or a very good double? Well, that was the idea. That was the other part of it. That there was a guy who looked like you taking your place. No, oh, well, this is him. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, and welcome to a very special edition of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul, trademark, copyright, all of the time. I am, of course, your ever disloyal and disreputable host, Sam Wiles, and the reason that today's episode is going to be a very special one is because we really haven't ever done an episode like it up until now, that is. Maybe this is your very first episode of Paul or Nothing. Oh, Christ, I bloody well hope not, because, well, firstly, if it is, welcome. Welcome to the show. But be aware that, in spite of the title, no, this isn't a show solely about zany conspiracy theories. We are a show whereby we are dissecting and studying the post-Beatle history of a certain Sir Paul McCartney. And, for the most part, the show has tried to keep its... Topics focused on the man and on the music as much as possible. But as you read through the glut of required material and go further down the McCartney rabbit hole, you start to come across these oddball offshoot aspects of the Paul McCartney story time and time again, like a bad case of the conspiratorial flu. And just like a virus, this particular topic we are addressing here today has fittingly infected entire swathes of the fringe group that is the Paul McCartney internet fan base. Thanks mostly due to the internet and the infected in turn are coughing and sneezing on the rest of us with wild abandon it is truly a fantastical story a remarkable story a seemingly impossible story at first that goes balls deep into the heart of one of pop culture's largest figures incorporating elements and allusions to the music business mafia satanic cults the illuminati cloning cia body doubles mi5 and of course the media now, if that hasn't got you hooked, I don't know what will. But yeah, of course, we are going to be discussing the wonderfully tinfoil tale that is... Paul is dead. 
I also wanted to take a quick moment to thank every one of you out there who are listening out there on the interwebs for supporting the show in whatever way you do, whether you support us on Patreon, whether you are one of the lovely folk who write into the show, and even you out there who have simply downloaded the show and are listening right now, I cannot express my thanks enough. It touches my heart every day to see downloads and viewing figures coming in, you know, outside of the obvious ego-boosting element of it. This show, throughout everything, has been an absolute blast to make for you, and all I can say is that I'm, I'm looking forward to making more content in the future. Now, I've already recently apologised on the latest episode as to why it's taken me so long to get some content out there for you recently, and one of those reasons was just the sheer, you know, borderline insurmountable scale of this Paul is Dead project. Rather like physics in many ways, the more you think you know about Paul is Dead, the less you actually know, as every web page and article has another tab and another offshoot that you just have to indulge yourself in, another angle that you didn't see before, and another interpretation that sends your mind racing. And so, to ensure that I get something out there for you, you know, for you, the listener this week, I will split this Titanic episode into two parts. In this half, I will cover the backstory, uh, the album covers, and a few of the more obscure little offshoot elements of the conspiracy. Whilst next time I'll be going through a lot of the lyrics, the backward lyrics, the music of the Beatles, as well as the glut of photographical and historical evidence surrounding this mysterious Macca malady. But before we debase this show by resorting to the ultimate Beatles fringe clickbait, we, we must first sell out in our own way with a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, you can help support the show, help the show aggressively expand, keep the lights running, all by joining us on our Patreon page, which is at www.patreon.com slash mccartneypod. Obviously, I make this show for free, and in my spare time, I'm, I'm not in it for the money. <laughs> as you can obviously tell by this point, this is a show by a fan for fans, and any expression of support from you guys in the community out there is, is always much appreciated, and this podcast is essentially all I would, and, and similar podcasts is all I would like to do in my spare time. That would be the dream, wouldn't it? Something else I do in my spare time is the blog. I've been posting there, well, I've been trying to post there a little, a little bit more regularly than I have for the podcast, I can tell you that for free. And the blog is the place where I can talk about Paul outside of the constraints of the show. And, you know, even many of the articles do go on to become episodes in their own right. So if you want some bonus Paul or nothing content, maybe with some early access Paul or nothing content, then check out the blog at wordpress.com slash Podcast. Uh, to get in more intimate contact with the show, send us an email, as I said in the intro, to paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. We've actually got a couple of emails to read out this week that two of you have sent in. Touches my heart every time. I'm always so excited to read this kind of stuff out on the show. The first one is from Phil Doublecross, and it reads, Hey up, Sam. Caught your podcast on Back to the Egg, which was timely because I've been playing it in the car the last week in rotation with Jethro Tull's Heavy Horses and Clutch's Blast Tyrant. I thought it was a suitably irreverent and at times astute. I thought you were a little hard on getting closer, but the unreleased version with Denny on lead vocals and a much brasher closing section does work a lot better for me. I do take issue with your assertion that Wings were a pop band masquerading as a rock band though. Of course, it was the other way around. Melody and vitality needn't be mutually exclusive. The band was intended as a touring vehicle, and though I never saw them, I guess they were always tougher live than on album, as evidenced by the footage and boots that always remain. Their first single, Give Island, okay, not the greatest tune in the world, 
but hardly easy listening. The opening track on their first album was the proto-punk Mumbo, which was as far from commercial as possible, and pretty ballsy. I love it! With, I accept notable exceptions, the run of early singles, Hi Hi Hi, Live and Let Die, Helen Wheels, and Junior's Farm were all rock songs and good ones at that. On their 72 tour, they opened some of their shows with Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll. For me, Wildlife, Band on the Run, Venus and Mars, and Wings Over America were rock albums. London Town was closer to a folk rock, and Speed of Sound admittedly was, for the most part, soft rock. Speedway did suffer from its own identity crisis and came closest to being a straight pop album. In that context, the idea of Wings getting back to their roots, McCartney has always talked about them going out like a skiffle band in the early days, makes perfect sense. After he broke up with Wings, McCartney didn't make any rock and roll music for nearly a decade, until he started touring again. Although, I still bought all the albums, with the exception of Pipes of Peace, slash Pipes of Piss, more in hope than expectation. But, as we fans know, you have to love the man warts and all. Keep up the good work, Phil. Now, Phil, thank you so much for that email. That was a very interesting one to read. I do like it when you challenge me out there, the listener. I always invite that kind of discussion. Um... I guess I've, I've always felt that even the kind of rockier elements of Wings' back catalogue always still have that kind of core pop element to them. Now, I'm not saying that rock and pop have no intersection. They are a very incestuous group pairing, obviously. But I've, I've always just felt that Wings, whenever they were doing rock, it, it always felt like they were tr- that was what they were trying to be and that's what they were, they were always trying to escape something else by doing that and there was a certain denial of who they were. And their poppier rock songs, like Helen Wheels, do have that kind of perfect balance of Wings tr- trying to do something that appeals to the audience and trying to do something that you know, appeals to the critics as well, trying to give them a little bit more street cred. And in a way, kind of the charm for me in the way that I've always interpreted Wings was the pop band, rock band kind of uh, dynamic. For me, it's quite charming that, you know, McCartney, the guy who wrote Maxwell's Silver Hammer and Honey Pie and When I'm 64, was trying to compete with Lennon doing things like Well, Well, Well. You know, it was just never going to happen, was it? And he was never going to get the credence of an album of something like All Things Must Pass, which is just, you know, full of two albums worth of soul and wit, isn't it? Although, Phil, I already have added Jethro Tull's Heavy Horses and Clutch's Blast Tyrant to my Spotify playlist. I will be looking forward to listening to them. And yes, I do agree with you. The unreleased version of Getting Closer with Denny Dean on vocals, which I looked at immediately after I read your email, is infinitely much more interesting. And to open back to the egg with a Denny Lane lead vocal would have would have been quite ballsy actually and it would have been a nice send-off for the band as well in fact actually i've been re-listening to give ireland back to the irish in recent weeks actually and i have found a bit of a a sly charm to it actually Uh, and you know you are right it it is the the greatest song in the world but it does have a charm and i have not heard wings's version of led zeppelin's rock and roll i will have to listen to that the moment i have finished this episode and this next email is from bodhi picus or picus he says Hello Sam, I stumbled upon your post on Macca's Best Beatles song somehow, which led me to your Paul McCartney solo podcast. Great stuff! I'm working my way through it now, really enjoying it. On my band page, I've started a new blog a while ago, and the first entry was on Paul's Best Solo Songs. We seem to be quite like-minded. If you're interested, and don't mind typos that I've yet to fix, you can read it at... I'll post a link down below. I'm looking forward to more of your podcasts in the future. Cheers, Bodhi. 
Well, thank you for that email, Bodie. And firstly, let me say that as a primary fan of HBO's The Wire and as a true Westside Barksdale boy, I'm a massive fan of your first name. And secondly, I have to commend you on your well-written and finely put-together blog post on the top 40 post-Beatles solo Paul McCartney songs. I didn't notice any typos, and fuck me. I know the horror of people commenting in comment sections and sending you emails in, pointing out your factual, clerical, and spelling errors. Now, I'm not sure if I was supposed to have listened to your band and promoted it here on the show with our five listeners, but either way, I will leave a link in the descriptions below, like I say, and whilst I don't know whether you are a reggae group or a Megadeth tribute band, but what I can say is that your post was obviously much better than anything we've written on our blog for this show, that's pormccartneypod.wordpress.com, by the way, and whilst I would say your placement of Jet was a little high for my taste, I was very happy to see... A Love For You, My Valentine, and The Back Seat Of My Car, also placing so high on your list. I had a lot of fun reading some new Paul McCartney content, and if you write anything else new, please send it in as well. I'd love to hear back from you, Bodie. But that being said, I don't just want to hear back from Bodie. I want to hear back from you, all of you out there in the world also. I don't care about age, country, musical taste, or any divisive demographic like that. Just feel free to send in anything. I love reading out any correspondence you send in, whether it's a hilarious or interesting Macca-based anecdote you may have stored up over the years. Maybe you've met him, you've been to a gig. How did you get into his music? Have you got a rare piece of memorabilia? Either way, what is your McCartney story? Or maybe you just want to say hi and say how great the show is. Either way, you can email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. If you want a slightly less intimate but more immediate point of contact for the show, then follow us on our Twitter page, which is the central hub of the show. We post stuff every day, which is at McCartneyPod. Find us on YouTube and Facebook, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. And last, but certainly not not least, if you have a spare five minutes out there in your day, which you clearly must have because you're listening to this bloody podcast, head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review if you can find us. This helps boost the show and gives us a little bit more exposure to all of those non-Paulie's deadheads. Right, now that we have that out of the way, we can get to the business at hand. The episode you are about to hear has not been censored or redacted in any way. This may, quite frankly, blow your mind. Buckle up, kids. Hit it, Johnny. What is Paul is dead? What the fuck was that? Who was that? Well, um... You heard the disembodied voice title there. What is this whole Paul is dead business? And as with most things surrounding this show, I'm guessing at least 30% of you already know large elements of this story in some detail. And I'd say another 50 out there have at least heard in some fashion of the infamous tale that is Paul is dead. Well, Paul is dead, simply put, is a theory put forward by various conspiratorialist conspiracists, conspiracy heads... You may even, in fact, call it a conspiracy theory that has been circulating around the cultural zeitgeist since the late 60s in the music scene and in the media. And now it has taken a firm foothold in the internet that James Paul McCartney, whilst out driving one night, died in a car crash and was then replaced by an imposter who looks exactly like him, who has been living, playing, recording and making babies as Paul in his place ever since. 
For those of you out there who are not in the know, yes, this is real. And no, you have not slipped into some Berenstain, Berenstain Bears alternate universe. Out there on the World Wide Web, with access to all manner of footage, photographs and paranoid bloggers, a brand new enclave of Paul is deadites, Paul is deadheads have sprung to life in recent years, giving new legs to this once dormant conspiracy. Now, before I begin a quick rundown of the Lovecraftian, David Simon-esque, Plato-scale epic mythos that is, Paul is dead, I have to preface two things. Firstly, is that I'm going to end up saying, some versions of the conspiracy say X and some say Y, and some people say this, and other very vague and unsubstantiated claims, because the Paul is dead conspiracy doesn't really have much of a bibliography really, it doesn't reference well, it doesn't use proper quotes and sources. A lot of it you have to take on faith and it's all about connecting the dots in your own way. This isn't a particular negative, a lot of, a lot of conspiracies like this, do you think 9-11 has a reference page and a bibliography? No, but it, it you know, it does have things like video footage of the fucking event happening. So yeah, apologies if I repeat myself a little, if I repeat myself a little, if I repeat myself a little. But repetition is both appropriate for Paul and for this conspiracy. More on that later though. And the second point is that whilst I certainly do have some opinions on this subject, which I may have already spoiled somewhat and will probably spoil throughout the entirety of both episodes, and even if you go back and listen to me on previous episodes, you will hear my opinions there. But I'm generally going to try and present this conspiracy, this case, this story, in the most non-bias, on-the-fence way possible. I've learned many things during the research for this show. I've been swayed one way or another on every single piece of evidence. I'm not saying I'm the most well-read-up man on this, but... After what I've looked at, I do have some opinions, but I'm going to be presenting them at the end of the second episode. I do have one little gripe to talk about, though, before we actually, you know, dig our teeth in, into this Paul is dead stuff. And this is possibly the, you know, the most boring gripe in the history of gripes. But, you know, it's best to get it out of the way before we actually start talking about interesting things. One of the most common errors that seems to surround this theory on YouTube is the sheer amount of American conspirators who are not aware of how the British calendar works. Like, there is such a wealth of examples where the theorists, depending on which part of the world they're from, seem to get caught up on the dates and the... And the variance on the dates is is massive. Like, depending on what source you're using, Paul could have died as, as early as 1965 and as late as 1967. And a lot of them seem to be hooked on whether it was like the 9th of September 1966 or the 11th of November 1966. So supposedly it could have taken place, you know, on, on, on either of those days. Maybe different things happened on those days, who knows. But if I'm going to get caught up in minor factual inconsistencies at such an early stage, then I may as well be prepared to make this Paul is Dead episode malarkey last nine hours, because as we're going to find out, some of this stuff, while some, you know, while some of it is quite tangible and quite shocking and quite, whoa, wow, and it might feel quite revelatory when you hear it or see it for the first time, some of this stuff does get pretty sketchy pretty quickly. I've also seen other spurious dates, you know, things like 9th of November 1966, which is basically, uh, you know, a combo of the first two, so obviously someone's gotten confused there. There's going to be a lot of human error and hearsay throughout both of these episodes, which is quite different to a lot of the research that I like to do, you know, getting different sources, different quotes that shed different lights on different subjects. But that's the thing about conspiracies. You only have one story, and that's the story that 
the people who are into the conspiracy give you because the people on the other side will just deny it. Paul has denied being dead several times now. I think it's gotten to the point now where, whereby if you were in an interview and you had to give your list of questions to Paul's publicist and one of them would be about Paul is dead, asking him if he's dead or not, they, they would just cancel the interview. I think it's gotten to that point now. Paul's been denying that he's been dead for years now. We'll get onto Paul and Paul's opinion on all of this at the end of the next episode. And now that we've gotten that out of the way, I think it's rather appropriate now for us to do our play-by-play of events on the final day of Paul McCartney's life. So yeah, picture yourself on a boat on a river. No, no, picture yourself. You are Beatle bassist Paul McCartney in Swing in London. It's either 9th of September 1966 or the 11th of November 1966. You've been in the studio all day long recording music for the indomitable Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. It's been a long day and John, probably in a drug fueled haze, has clearly displayed his growing lack of disinterest within the band. And after a few choice raised words, you storm out in a rage of your own, possibly intoxicated in your own right, and then you clamber into your Austin Healy. And then some versions of the story have Paul simply losing control due to his enraged or impaired driving, and others have him stopping to pick up a woman possibly named Rita, on the side of the road. Maybe a hitchhiker, a fan, a prostitute, who knows, it varies every single time. And apparently this woman, upon finding out who had picked her up, apparently went into hysterics, which caused the car to crash. And it's here that, as a podcaster delving into Paul or Nothing, I'm faced with the urge to add to the mythos myself, as it seems that there are so many referenceless clues that have no real backing at all that I could slip one of my own in here, you know. Paul was actually trying to murder the girl, yes. Paul was a serial killer and the car crash was out of the girl's ensuing struggle not to get murdered. And the cover-up was to save the McCartney name, the McCartney fortune. You know, because it's much easier to create a CIA body doppelganger double with plastic surgery than it is just to say someone died. Of course. Stay on the fence, Sam. Stay on the fence, goddammit. So, after the crash, there is, of course... A minor media furore surrounding the scene. Word would get out quickly. People wouldn't want to see. Oh my God, Paul McCartney's car has crashed. And there's no body by the time a lot of people get there. As the ambulance team and the cleanup crews have already swept the area within minutes. Paul is reported to be alive and fine. But he would not be open for any questioning at all at this time. Except this was not the case at all. Paul was not fine. Paul was... Well, Paul is dead. Paul is dead! Now, I don't have to be a tinfoil hat loony to point out, in fact, that there were a lot of awfully rich, awfully powerful, awfully awful, awfully influential people who all had an awful lot invested and a lot riding on these four Beatle chaps from Liverpool. And despite the Beatles' own money quibbles, they were making money for the men upstairs in ungodly sums, especially in comparison to what they were making even at this time in 66. For every couple of hundred grand or million the Beatles got, they were making tens and fifties for the suits upstairs. Millions and millions from album sales, merchandising, ticket sales, films, TV show appearances, cartoons, book deals, press junkets, and private meetings and shows for the rich and famous. As a unit, the Beatles were one of the largest single four-man economies in the world, and the suits, as the Beatles called them, would have lost everything if the party had come to such an abrupt end that night in 1966. There would have been no Penny Lane, no Strawberry Fields, no Sgt. Pepper, no All You Need Is Love, no Magical Mystery Tour, no White Album, no Yellow Submarine, no Hey Jude, no Let It Be, no Abbey Road, and no Revolution 9. 
And yes, there's all the films and all the, the other crap that would go along with it and all that kind of stuff. And you can just see the potential sales figures on this visual graph appearing in front of the eyes of the businessmen that are like a cross between the Wolf of Wall Street and those octopi machines in the Matrix. And you can see why certain people in positions of power may see it fit to keep the circus going, keep the show going on just for a little bit longer. Those suits, by the way, these suits I can range from Apple to MI5, Satanic Cults, Freemasons, Banks, the Illuminati, and of course, the race of David Icke lizard people. The other three Beatles would, of course, be threatened and, you know, possibly silenced if they stepped out of line. George Harrison and John are no longer with us. Both murdered. Slightly suspicious, isn't it? The way the Paul is dead cabal, and I think cabal will be the phrase that I'll use for the most of these episodes, managed to keep the show going with a very Kafka-esque marionette. Yes, folks, we are now wandering into the psychosomatic, paradimensional world of body doubles and doppelgangers. The main story is that the cabal set up a Paul McCartney look-alike contest. And they picked the winner, a man who, you know, again, depending on who you ask, was by the name of William Shears or Billy Campbell. And, you know, once it had been determined that he'd been selected, he was the chosen one, he would either be bribed or coerced into getting a whole lot of plastic surgery and having to spend the rest of his life living it out as Paul McCartney. Now, I know a lot of us want to be our heroes, but I think that is going a little bit too far, don't you? I mean, that's an odd opportunity, an odd very unique opportunity to be offered to someone. Would you like to be Paul McCartney for a day? Oh yeah, for a day, fantastic. Okay, well, would you like to be Paul McCartney forever? And you've got to make all the music and you've got to keep it all going, you've got to keep the show going, you've, you've got to do all the tours, you've got to marry Linda, you've got to raise the kids, you know, you've got to do the press junkets, you've got to be Paul McCartney forever. C you know, can you live up to it? And whether he, he was coerced, whether he was brainwashed, you know, maybe there was some MK Ultra stuff going on, Billy Campbell Shears did go along with it and he would also have to have you know singing lessons and musical lessons to get the musical side down songwriting classic you know songwriting classes and having to work with ghostwriters to make sure more of the hits were churned out you know acting classes to get the voice and the mannerisms down press courses to handle the public and he would also have to smoke a whole lot of weed and quickly build up a believable McCartney-esque tolerance to the green herb in various publications and works this Fake Paul, in a Bradgelina-style quip, will also be referred to as Fall, Fake Paul. And, you know, throughout the episode, if I suddenly stop saying Billy Campbell, you'll know who the fuck I'm talking about. You know, there's Fall, Fake Paul, Imposter Paul, Clone Paul, Body Double Paul. Any of these will be referring to Mr. William Campbell Shears. The next part of the tale is possibly the most enthralling for the layman as it adds an extra layer of interactivity within the story. The premise is, is that either the Paul stand-in, Billy Campbell Shears, the other three Beatles, or both, knew that if they attempted to divulge their story and the situation in a conventional direct manner, i.e. To, to the press, then the forces that be, you know, the cabal, that were attempting to get away with covering up Paul's death, would stop them, or worse, have them be killed and replaced with other clone pod people so to combat this again either billy campbell alone or the other three work working alone or as a foursome they would begin to put revealing clues to the mystery hidden within the breadth of their work 
Now, since this came to light, every single product and single piece of media that, that the Beatles have ever put out has been scoured and scrutinised with a fine tooth comb for any clue that may reveal further parts to this tale. It's a true Easter egg hunt of epic proportions, a scavenger hunt and a murder mystery all rolled into one. And the fact that the only items you need to get involved with the conspiracy theory are the products of the Beatles themselves, aka products that everyone and their mum in the 60s would actually own, meant that it was actually one of the most egalitarian and socialist conspiracies that anyone could ever be interested in, because no one would not have these albums anyway. It's a very tactile and physically engaging conspiracy and it means that you don't just have to take someone's word for it or just read about this stuff secondhand. You can go, you, you yourself can go out right now and grab a copy or buy a copy of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or the White Album and start the journey for yourself. Whereas 9-11 may be the gulf of the conspiracy world, think of Paul is Dead like soccer whereby anyone can get involved. This, as well as the sheer amount of time this story has been around in the pop culture zeitgeist, has meant that the tale unlike other large conspiracy theories, is not one single gospel narrative that's being retold over and over. Rather than that, it's a, a very living document, a very mercurial conspiracy that is constantly evolving and changing. So whenever some new wacko, uh, sorry, whenever some new credible investigator comes along with, with a, a new twist, rather than being seen as revisionism or further crackpottery, it is welcomed into the fold no matter how little sense it may make or how much it contradicts previous evidence. But I'm getting ahead of myself. One element of the story I noticed that rarely gets mentioned is of Ono, oh Yoko Ono. And obviously she claimed that she had no idea who the Beatles were when she met John, but in fact she had met Paul previously, aka the real Paul. You know, Paul had always been the true avant-garde Beatle. He had met Yoko in these artsy circles, which makes things even weirder when you find out that, you know, both Yoko and Linda Eastman, the future Mrs. McCartney, both went to the same college at the same time. So is Yoko Ono another agent? Was she scouting out Paul? Was she setting them up for something special? Was she setting John up for something special as well? Another little tangent, though, about Yoko is that if she did meet the original Paul, the original real James Paul McCartney, then maybe when she had got together with John, say, after the accident and realised that it was the fake Paul, this may have been the real reason behind their animosity. The real reason why Paul and Yoko never got along was because she knew that he wasn't the real Paul, so she wasn't going to give him any respect or take any of his ideas seriously. There's also the military-industrial complex side of this story, which starts to get a lot crazier very quickly when you start to read about, you know, the, the Kafka-esque levels of real-life body doubles and doppelgangers being used by the CIA, FBI, and by dictators all over the world. The CIA, for example, regularly used body doubles of Bin Laden for propaganda videos, as well as meetings with other smaller terrorist groups. Saddam Hussein famously had numerous body doubles for himself and his sons, which was actually done into a film a couple of years ago, actually. I wish I could remember the title. And it's theorised that even Kim Jong-il, during his latter years of ill health, was always a body double when in public, and that there were dozens of body doubles across the country imposing order. I know that it's one thing to replace a political figure with a lookalike who is just used as a decoy, probably isn't being used in close-up interviews or anything. You know, maybe that effect can be achieved, but it's another thing to replace a public figure, a singer-songwriter, you know, one of those famous people on the planet. But, as we know, technologies are always being held back from the populace, and who knows what modern marvels that we're not meant to know about, what, you know, what they can do, what they can alter, what they can get away with. You know, that's not just the occasional use of smoke and mirrors and wigs. 
I mean, have you even seen those programs whereby they can map a person's face and voice through downloading and analyzing numerous video and audio files so that they can take all, all of your data, compile it into creating a, a what can I, you know, I can only describe it as like a mean average of your face and voice and from all that they can pretty much make you do and say anything like I've, I've seen fo footage of this where they've done this with like George Bush and stuff and they've and they just wrote a script and this George Bush bot just said it and that kind of power is pretty crazy how long have they had that so if that's been revealed to us in 2016 17 18 is it too implausible to theorize that William Billy Campbell had a little bit of surgery and had to learn the base doesn't sound so far-fetched does it if you sat there wondering as to how a story like this could ever be so popular, then this might not be the podcast for you. This is a story that has all of it, really. It has death, a conspiracy, mysterious dark forces, hidden clues, an imposter, the Beatles sneaking out messages, possible cloning, possible satanic cults, and what may be the most interactive do-it-yourself conspiracy that has ever been disseminated into pop culture. I mean, maybe you are one of the few Neanderthals who doesn't like the Beatles, who somehow listens to this podcast, and, you know, maybe this might slip you by, but for anyone re remotely interested to know about the Fab Four would not be able to resist such a tale. Death is always something, you know, that is a, a draw for these kind of things. You know, whether it's Elvis or Hitler, Biggie or Tupac, or even John Lennon himself supposedly faking their deaths. I'm actually listening to those conspiracy guys right now. They're, they're talking about Jim Morrison. Perhaps he faked his death as well. And the lure that someone might still be, in fact, alive, or someone who is alive might be, in fact, dead, as this conspiracy does, it kind of turns that trope on its head, is just irresistible. The appeal of this theory is the same as any other conspiracy theory. And it's the idea that, you know, the people who are involved, the conspiratorialists, are in the know. And they know things. And they are seeking to know designated things that they should not know. They gain the upper hand. They become woke. They stick it to the man who is trying to keep them down, man. And in essence, if you are aware of some grand overarching conspiratorial narrative, then you are more prepared and more in control of the world around you. Or so it is perceived anyway. Whether it is a crusade against a secret or an ego-fueled quest for knowledge, people are drawn to this theory as it plays into the hands of the ever-popular things-are-not-as-what-they-seem prism by which people tend to view the modern world. After, you know, postmodernism and the collapse of religion, people are kind of left without many great mysteries, factual scapegoats and other paranormalisms to keep their monkey brains entertained. And so, as people, we have had to make up our own tales in their place. Instead of featuring gods and monsters, we now have the Illuminati and the Beatles instead, which is appropriate, really, because they were bigger than Jesus. Speaking of bigger than Jesus and of John Lennon, the thing that does give this story some legitimacy is that we do know that there are many, 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 many real conspiracies within the world. People do conspire to get things that they want. I mean, I know that if I suddenly became the head of a corporation? Yeah, you know, some of my friends might get some low-level entry jobs over other people. Why not? I am a big fan of nepotism, mostly because I, I need some nepotism right now. And we know for a fact that people, or a person, perhaps people, conspired to kill John Lennon. I'm not saying that there was a, a grassy knoll or that Ringo was the Lindbergh baby or anything, but there was some behind-the-scenes buffoonery, and one man shot and killed John Lennon. He conspired to do that, possibly with other people. It kind of makes you question the possibility of such a conspiracy, like Paul is dead. 
We know for a fact that John Lennon lied to the public and to some extent the rest of the Beatles. He conspired to not reveal that he was about to leave the band at the drop of a hat so that Alan Klein could negotiate far better, far more lucrative contracts and record deals for the Beatles with Capital. There was a conspiracy, if you will, to get rid of Pete Best. The band were more than ready to get rid of this guy as he was just not cutting the mustard in that way and he was better looking than they all were. And by the time that George Martin said he wasn't happy with Best, the rest of the band were more than eager to seize the moment and oust him out of the band and make him walk the plank. The FBI conspired to remove John Lennon from the USA as he was a threat to national security with all of his give peace a chance malarkey. Paul McCartney conspired in secret to ensure that the release of his debut album McCartney clashed with the release of Let It Be to sabotage and damage sales. And by all accounts, Yoko, as described in our McCartney 2 episode, apparently, as far as the story goes, conspired to have Paul McCartney arrested in Japan on marijuana charges, with some versions even having her getting the Japanese custom officials to plant the drugs on Paul. If nothing else, what the Paul is Dead phenomena does prove is that the cultural reach and significance of the Beatles have, to this day, an incomprehensibly, incalculably far-reaching grasp. Like, not only do they own the music and pop culture and film realms, but they even rank in the top conspiracy theories also. Right. I think it's about time we started looking at some of the evidence, don't don't you? Whew. Right. I think it's about high time we actually started to look at some of the evidence in this episode, don't you? The Evidence. Album Covers. This will certainly be one episode where we do not forget to do the album art segment, as the album covers of the Beatles are one of the key and most iconic elements of the Paul is Dead conspiracy. Like I just mentioned, the reason for this is that anyone can go out and dig out their own album and find the clues for themselves. It's very fun. It's very hands-on. You get to get your hands dirty like a mystery novel for children whereby you know you're scouring every square inch of print like some demented life or death version of where's wally slash where's waldo this is one of the most fun and interactive parts of the conspiracy for me as it plays into the hands of every beatles fan in the world you know fans like me who had already obsessively collected every album you know you've got them all and you can just go through them and you get to have your whoa dude moments but let's start with the very first album and the first album we're going to be discussing today is, of course, a very iconic one indeed. It is the cover for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from 1966. So the cover for this one is indeed one of the big ones. Not just as much as this conspiracy goes, but in terms of album covers in general. I mean, you've seen it, I've seen it, we've all seen it. It's a visual cornucopia, a wonder to behold, and the mental stimulation that such an image creates is bound to appeal to overactive imaginations, overly inquisitive minds, obsessives, and people slightly on the spectrum. I mean, there are 71 in different individual figures that adorn this front cover, and each and every one of them apparently has a significance as to why they would, they would be featured on such an album cover. But what exactly is this album cover portraying? Well, according to the theory, this is no school photograph or company picnic photograph. No, no, the reason everyone is arranged so neatly in a rank-and-file fashion in front of an arrangement of flowers and personal trinkets is that this is... It's a funeral, isn't it? This cover is literally depicting the death of the Beatles as an original foursome, and now the Illuminati cult is celebrating this fantastical rebirth as brightly and as colourfully as possible to distract you from the fact that Paul might be looking slightly differently. But more on that next episode. Anyway, I just love how this album cover is letting us know about Paul's death in 
such ironically beautiful Technicolor, when really, it should all be black. Sorry, Metallica. I mean, when you look at the bass guitar, you all know what I mean. It, it, you know, it looks awfully similar to a funeral wreath and, you know, who played bass? You guessed it, our Paulie. It's even facing to the left, only to further allude that everyone's left-handed bass player is dead. We also have various religious statues surrounding the grave. Everyone looks into the grave. You know, there is a certain significance that is drawing us to the bottom and centre of the image. The entire menagerie of the crowd that are attending this funeral are all people that were, you know, somehow significant to Paul's life, not the Beatles' life. And they are off to see him into the next life. We have Alistair Crowley, the, the infamous creator uh, and writer of the Satanic Bible. Wow, that's immediately suspicious already. And, well, let's just look at the Beatles themselves, or, or as I should say, the two sets of Beatles themselves is. Of course, up front and centre, we have what we assume to be the Beatles, dressed head to toe in full bright Sergeant Pepper regalia, and they look as fabulous as ever, obviously, in this new get-up that we've never seen before. But just off to the side, what do we see? Why, it's the Beatles again. The, well, more specifically, four of Madame Tussauds' excellent waxwork sculptures of the Beatles in their kind of black suits, their earlier look, and they are looking straight down at the funeral in front of the Pepper Beatles. I mean, Look at all four of them and tell me that they aren't attending a funeral. They are all dressed head to head to toe in black and Ringo looks just distraught and depressed as as he looks down and Paul, aka the old, the real, the original biological Paul, even you know, is he's consoling Ringo. He's got his hand on his shoulder. He's trying to let him know that he's okay, but he's not there anymore. Symbolically, this new Sgt. Pepper, this new version of the Beatles as an, another entity, you know, in this interpretation, is meant to signify that this band that we know as the Beatles, literally, as well as figuratively, is no more. It has ceased to be. They have expired and gone to meet their maker. They're a stiff, bereft of life. They rest in peace. If you hadn't have turned them into wax, they'd be pushing up the daisies. Their metabolic processes are now history. They're off their twig. They've kicked the bucket. They've shuffled off this mortal coil and run down the curtain and joined the bleeding quiet invisible. They are an ex-band. They may look like the Beatles. They may sound like the Beatles, but they are not the Beatles. The costume change is telling us that they are now something new, something different, and, you know, something that we have not seen. We, we look, but we do not see. We do not spot the difference. They are not to be trusted from now on, basically. And one of the statues that I mentioned, the little religious icons, is of Shiva, the god of destruction but also of rebirth, at the bottom of the cover. And that only goes to reinforce this theme. And that's not all. Zoom in on what the Beatles are holding on the front cover. All three surviving real Beatles are carrying shiny brand new gold instruments. And yet Paul stands out by carrying a black foreboding oboe. I just loved saying that. I don't think anyone has, has ever said foreboding oboe before. Remember, it all has meaning. We just have to find it. We just have to spot it, people. And the imagery of Paul and the message and the clue of Paul standing out with a certain distinctive feature, making himself separate from all the other Beatles, trying to make himself notice, trying to draw our attention to something is a pattern, is a recurring theme that we will see time and time again in this conspiracy theory. So keep your eyes and ears peeled. Oh, speaking of recurring themes, also on the front cover you'll see a hand above the head of Paul, or should I say the head of Billy Campbell Shears. This is reported by the theorists, by the Paulist Deadites, as a Hindu symbol for death. Having spent so much time in India following the death of Brian Epstein, who may or may not be a wider part of this conspiracy, his, his death I mean, meant that the Beatles and Paul would be more than familiar with this death symbol, and the hand above Paul's head is going to be something that we spot a lot as well. 
Many theorists right from the get-go spotted one of the most conclusively fucked up holy shit elements of the Sgt. Pepper cover. If you take a mirror and hold it across the middle of the words Lonely Hearts, written across the centre of the fantastically designed bass drum, which I also drew at a quarter scale for an art project in secondary school, and the reflection of the mirror, once you put it there, will read I1 IX He Die. When arranged as I1 IX He Die, the image suggests the date, the 11th of the 9th, or November 9th, 1966. That is the day that Paul died, according to some of the stories, and the diamonds between the words he and die point directly at Paul. Annoyingly, in a similar turn of events uh, to comment on the American Yanks and their dating in the early episodes, the problem with this clue is that we Brits write the date as day, month, year, rather than the American month, day, year, which would make this date, well, it would make the death day of Paul September 11th rather than 9th. Fuck, now we're getting somewhere, folks. Woo, we're picking up steam now. Paul died on September 11th, Illuminati confirmed. Case closed. I mean, you really would have thought that the uh, conspiratorialists out there would have spot that particular clue, and I think that would have helped uh, grow the conspiracy in the early 2000s. But anyway, moving on. You could also read all of that anyway as 111X, meaning that one of the four is gone, and then he died, points out to Paul as the, the missing Beatles. You know, there's one Beatle, one Beatle, one Beatle, and X. There's only three Beatles. Only three Beatles. Paul's costume has always been up for debate and a point of much scrutiny in this story, and the details of it can be inspected in much closer detail on the inner sleeve of the album. Seeing Paul set so close to the lens, we are shown a patch, a badge thing on his left arm. The image is somewhat warped by the fabric of the badge, but according to the theorists, it reads OPD, aka officially pronounced dead. One of the medals on Paul's uniform is only awarded to the British Army at a time for when soldiers had died in battle, rather like the Purple Heart for America. Even his seated position, again standing out by being the only beetle showing his legs, appears to be in an almost fetal position, once again symbolising the great rebirth of Paul McCartney. Speaking of the close-up of Paul in the inner sleeve, I think now would be the best time to talk about the infamous Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney, Willie Campbell, Sergeant Pepper moustache. This well-known piece of upper lip fluff was, as far as we public were told, to cover up a scar that the real Paul had gained from a scooter accident in 1966. However, as we, the truly enlightened, know, this moustache was to cover up one of the only noticeable scars that Willie Campbell Shears, you know, the fake fall, suffered during his plastic surgery to make him look more like Paul. On the back cover, the clues continue. Seriously, the value for money that Paul is deadites, Paul is deadheads would get out of purchasing a single copy of Sgt. Pepper is staggering. But yeah, already we, we can see that Paul is standing out from the rest of the band. How? Well, he literally stands backwards. He's facing the wrong way. Is this to hide your face, Billy Shears? Was this, was this an early test photograph? Who knows? But again, Paul is standing out and drawing your attention. But scan further across the image and look at George, and you'll see that he's literally pointing to something. And what is he pointing at? Well... Sgt. Pepper was the very first album which had all of the lyrics printed on the back cover. It was quite revolutionary for the time. So, for it to just be a coincidence that George would be pointing at something on such a unique album cover is quite unlikely. And he's pointing to the lyric, Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock, from She's Leaving Home. This is the time when Paul was supposed to have had his car crash. Holy shit! That is fucked up if it's true. The time that Paul supposedly had his car crash. That's really specific. And the Cabal are showing us right now that they are not proofreading these album covers enough in this Paul is dead fracas. Unless, you know, it's more about the powers that be, the Cabal, the Illuminati, a.k.a. them, are actually intentionally 
putting out these clues out there for the explicit purpose of people like us to actually find them. Now, this could you know, be a similar CIA double bluff whereby, you know, you, you, you put the truth out there and you mix it in with a load of bullshit so that it gets discredited and, and forgotten. Or it could be some sort of sick method by which the powers that be can flaunt their power openly to the public and get away with it with no reprisals whatsoever. And subsequently, all of the people clever enough to spot and crack the almost Masonic code will simply be labelled as crazy loony people. It's only a coincidence that massive groups of the Paul is Dead crowd are consistently described as being completely crazy. It's just a coincidence, ladies and gentlemen. A very coincidental coincidence. Moving on to Yesterday and Today, also from 1966. Of course, the Beatles' most infamous and controversial album cover would also be subject to the scrutiny of this theory, as its gruesome imagery is just so richly open to interpretation. The original Yesterday and Today album cover had a picture with the Beatles adorning themselves with the bodies of decapitated dolls, raw meat and loose teeth all over their bodies, with some versions apparently having blood on it also, but I have no proof of that. This was the cover that was so infamously horrible and grotesque it was banned in shops. Beatles historians and The Man would have us believe that the Beatles did this album cover and created such a shocking image as a protest against Capitol Records' poor release of their music. However, it is more likely that The Cabal, upon seeing such an obvious allusion to Paul is dead, you know, dead Beatles, dying Beatles, gory Beatles, it was just a little too on the nose for them, so they pulled it. I mean, it is pretty risque even by today's standards, and even Paulie himself has teeth and one of the doll's heads placed right on top of him indicating the places of his fatal injuries. Oh, sorry, I'm not sure if I mentioned that. The One of the kind of tenements of the conspiracy is that Paul's car crash died with him either being decapitated or his, his, you know, his, his head being caved in, and you know, that's how he died. But yeah, it's pretty obvious, so that's obviously why the Cabal pulled it. However, this did not deter the Fab 3 plus 1 imposter slash Fab 4, as this censorship of the conspiratorial truth only spurred them to come up with ever more devious and creative ways to put out their message. You know, just like the British Conservative Party's inherent racism. On the other more acceptable album cover, we get to see the Beatles standing and sitting on a large, empty, upright travel case with our four sat comfortably inside. This image is meant to be symbolic of Paul in a coffin and the other three Beatles are there to move his corpse or are displaying it at a funeral. Pressing on to the Magical Mystery Tour in 1967 and this obviously came in hot on the heels of Sgt Pepper and it's no wonder really as this album is also awash with clues to help us inform us of the nefarious misdeeds that were surrounding the Beatles at this time. The Magical Mystery Tour, aside from being a disappointing film, was the start of what George and John would refer to as the second period of the band, which is after Brian's death, whereby Paul, slash Four, was taking greater control of the band. Now, potentially, this means that, you know, if this Fall is pulling the strings of the band, then the Cabal and the Illuminati, they and them, are possibly controlling the band through Billy Shears and are using him to steer the Beatles in an artistic direction that the Cabal would prefer. In other words, maybe there are mysteries and hidden messages hidden within the Beatles' music that we are truly unaware of. Maybe we are being distracted with all this Paul is Dead stuff and there are darker, more cryptic, more nefarious messages that are being pumped out to us through this music that are holding back society as we know it. Just a thought. Now, in somewhat of an inverse of the cornucopia of Paul is Dead clues with Sgt. Pepper, the majority of the allusions to Paul is Dead are actually found on the inside of the record as opposed to the outside. This is mostly due to the fact that the Magical Mystery Tour came with a bonus 24-page colour booklet that told the whole story of the film, as well as expanded on the quote-unquote Beatles cinematic universe. 
though that doesn't necessarily mean that the front cover is completely bereft of Paulist deadisms. Most famously, when you take the word Beatles on the front of it and hold it up to a mirror again, rather like the centre drum skin of the Sgt Pepper cover, will result in a Masonic image that is ultimately revealed, and it turns out it's actually a phone number. Not sure what area code one has in the world that only has seven digits, but the number reads 2317438. And I've read sources all over the internet, and even one written source. Yes, folks, I do actually read a shitload of books on these things. And appropriately, some of the original Paulist Deadites called this number way back in the 60s, apparently, and were greeted by a strange cryptic message that said, You're getting closer, at which point the number would suddenly go dead. Others claim that this was Billy Shear Campbell's original phone number. We know that the whole album, being a double EP, in its UK release anyway, was an experiment with formats, products, marketing and release stylings, and it was clear that the same spirit extends to every part of the product. This was most notable with the inclusion of the album's accompanying content, the delightful inner booklet. It's 24 pages of magnificent colourful illustrations and photos of the tour. is just a wonder to behold. And it was actually the very first album I ever bought on vinyl for the Beatles. And I remember this coming with it and just feeling so blessed. This booklet was also an experimental phase for the Beatles or the Cabal or Billy Campbell himself to come up with ever new ways to deliver their message. Rather than just one cover, they could plant 24 specifically tailored MK Ultra esque images into the people's minds with this book. I mean, it's not like it's a clue or two clues per page or anything, but some of it gets pretty weird. Now, I'll go through the whole thing in order. Not that it makes much more sense doing it in this order, it's not really a cohesive narrative or anything. Right from the very first line of this little booklet, though, we have this shit being subtly programmed into our fucking minds. Like, there's no subtlety here anymore, people. They're coming right out the gates with it. The very first fucking line reads, Away in the sky, beyond the clouds, live four or five magicians. And that line is directly below a picture of all four of the Beatles. Now, I'm no code-breaker mathematician or anything, but there seems to be a little suspicious about the juxtaposition of imagery and information. Like, this is a straight-up direct reference to the fact that Paul died and was replaced in the band, and the new fall makes up the fifth member. But now only four are alive, so it's four or five. What's messed up about this one for me is that its seemingly innocent ambiguity seems so blatant as a reference to the whole theory. On page four, we are treated to an image of Major McCartney, a possible nickname for the new overbearing militaristic Billy Shears fall, dressed head to toe in British army garb, and written across the bottom of his desk that there's a large sticker that reads, I was, which is a rather fitting tagline for an image of the fake Paul McCartney. Paul was, he is no more. This is not Paul. On page five, Paul is dressed as the walrus, not John, as shown in the music video. Apparently this is because the walrus mask they had that day wouldn't fit John. You know, yeah, that's what the official story tells anyway. But for those who don't, for those not in the know, walruses and walrus imagery is something that, that is going to, again, crop up time and time again in this story. We will talk about walruses a little bit more later. But let's just say, being a walrus or being associated with the walrus in this story is not a good sign at all. As walruses are a figure of death. Yes, you heard me. Walruses are death in this story. It's not good. 
So, of course, Paul is the walrus in this image. And does that mean John's holding the bass? Maybe this change in costume and instrumentation is down to the fact that old Billy Four Shears wasn't up to the job of playing Paul's instrument, and maybe he could hide his lack of talent behind the piano as fake John. So we have a fake Paul pretending to be a fake John Lennon now. This is getting a little bit confusing, so let's move on. One of my favourite clues is on page 8, which is a fisheye lens photograph of a meal during the mystery tour. But if you turn the image 90 degrees and cut off the majority of the right-hand side of it, you see the people sat at the table and the table itself form into an image that is quite obvious once you finally see it and you can't unsee it and it is that of a human fucking skull staring right at you. Of course, this is to symbolise death and the death of Paul, but it's also again drawing attention to the area that was damaged in the crash, i.e. his head. Paul is not wearing any shoes on page 13. This is another motif that was mostly popularised by the Abbey Road cover. So it was, it was kind of retroactively shown, but maybe it was symbolism that was already well aware to the Beatles and Fall and the Cabal at this time anyway. But it's important to make a note of a lack of shoes for future reference in this segment. There's an image of Paul on page 15 of the booklet, whereby we have an image of Major Paul at his desk. This time an illustration, a cartoon, and he's playing with a car at his desk. Very on the nose, if you ask me. If you jump to pages 18 and 24, you'll be treated to two more images of Paul with a fucking hand above his head. I mean, Christ, how many times can someone accidentally have a hand above their head, people? This can't be a coincidence. And finally, on page 23, we have the infamous image of Paul with the black carnation from the Your Mother Should Know sequence from the Magical Mystery Tour movie. The official line of history talks of that they simply didn't have a fourth red rose that day on the shambolic set of the Magical Mystery Tour. But, I mean, it must be harder to get a black carnation than it is to get a red one. I really, I, It's very hard to believe that a black carnation was readily available that day, but another red one wasn't. And of course, the black rotting leaves of the black carnation, again, symbolised the death of Paul. Jumping forward another year to The Beatles, a.k.a. The White Album in 1968. The biggest Beatles release of all time, of course, was going to have a slew of Paul is Dead clues. Now, the problem with this album cover is that it functions perfectly as the antithesis of the visual splendour of things like Sgt. Pepper and the Magical Mystery Tour, resulting in a completely white album cover with no title and no artwork. As Paul details in the Beatles anthology series, they all felt a bit bad for not including some lush visual food for their fans to feast upon, so they made an illustrious poster instead. In this massive fold-out poster from the album, we have a deft use of both the utilisation of negative space and the art of flooding the page with so much shit that you can certainly squeeze in a provocative image or two past the censors. Let's start off with the smallest image first and work our way up. Firstly, there's a picture of a suspiciously Paul McCartney-esque looking fellow with a moustache and glasses in the far bottom right-hand corner of the image. Rather infamously, this is supposedly the true photograph and in some circles, the passport photograph of one William Billy Campbell, a.k.a. the man who would be king. While some people say that this is just Paul McCartney in costume, no people, there are many differences. They are slight, but they are there. If you look closely at this photo, it is not Paul McCartney, but a man who looks a lot like Paul McCartney. This is William Campbell. Check it out for yourselves right now. I'll wait. Then, moving right across to the bottom of the page, and doubling in size, we move on to one of the most fucked up images in this whole narrative. The rectangular photo is of Paul dancing and clapping, and of course this in itself is nothing that weird, but what's next to Paul is the thing that shits me up big time. I was first shown this image by my flatmate Chris at uni, as he had the poster up in his bedroom, and I, I, I remember being really creeped out then, because the image, rather inexplicably and 
and you can't call it anything other than this, is a pair of ghostly ghoul hands reaching out to fucking grab Paul and suck his soul to hell. Like, Jesus cunting Christ, what else can that image be? Don't give me that, oh, it's just a flaw in the film negative. Fuck that shit. I know the truth now. I believe. Not only is Paul dead, but now we also have the conclusive and irrefutable proof of the afterlife, ghosts, spirits, and the spirit world marking a man for death in photographical form. Before we move on, Chris also had one of my Wings posters up in his room for an entire year, which I had to steal back from him before I actually moved back home. Thank fuck, that was the Venus and Mars one, it was great. And finally, we have the most overtly symbolic, cultish, and least on-the-nose image on the poster, namely the large image at the top with Paul in the bath. Why is an image of Paul in the bath to be of such interest? Well, he has submerged his entire body, bar his arms, so that he's just protruding his head from the water. Almost like it's a floating entity that is entirely separate, some would say detached, decapitated from his body altogether. As we all know, Paul is meant to have been beheaded in the fatal car crash, and his eyes are even closed on this freaking image. This one is very clever in its execution. It's both kind of blatant, if you know what you're looking for, but it's subtle enough to get past the casual viewer. Moving on to the Beatles' animated feature slash soundtrack album Yellow Submarine from 1968. I honestly would have thought that the film itself would be kind of full to the brim with Paul is Dead references. And actually, you know, there is one scene where Paul is literally portrayed as a Frankenstein figure. I, you know, he literally comes back from the dead. But the album cover itself, despite its vibrant and unique art style, it really doesn't give us Paul is Dead heads to look into. Outside of the tiny cameo reappearance of the Sgt. Pepper band in the bottom corner, except for that fucking hand above Paul's head. Go back, check it out. John's hands in the devil's horns, no less, the rock and roll devil's horns, no less, is above Paul's fucking head. How many accidental fucking hands can be accidentally above this guy's fucking head? What the fuck, yo? What the fuck? Jumping forward to the last album that was somehow released first, we have Abbey Road from 1969. While Sgt. Pepper may be the most famous album cover in the general Beatles history, I'd argue that the cover for Abbey Road is easily the most notorious in the eyes of Paul is Dead fanatics. The cover was released after the story had been gaining traction for a few years, and it now adorns more university dorm rooms than generic Bob Marley weed posters. The most significant image on the cover is, of course, the Beatles themselves, with them iconically striding single file across the zebra crossing, and the discussion surrounding the interpretation of the Beatles as displayed here has always fascinated me as it both seems to be one of the biggest stretches ever as well as one of the seemingly oddly sound elements of logic ever. The story goes that the Beatles are marching in a pseudo-faux-funeral procession. So we've had Paul's funeral with Sgt. Pepper, now with Abbey Road we have the funeral procession going from left to right. It's done in the order of John at the front, dressed in white to symbolise the priest. Then Ringo, described either as the mourner or the undertaker in his black suit. Then we have Paul wearing no shoes, as described on page 13 of the Magical Mystery Tour booklet. Corpses, of course, do not have shoes, apparently. And lastly, by George, and it's probably the most spurious one of the lot, and it's quite disappointing, really. Dressed in head-to-toe in blue denim, and no, he's not ultra-90s man. He's apparently meant to be the grave digger? Mm, yeah, that last one doesn't quite hold up. Maybe George should have some robes dripping in blood and a goat's head or something to be more fitting, perhaps. Being one of the most famous left-handed bass players ever, we all know that Paul was left-handed, and yet the photo 
for the, the cover of this album shows him holding his cigarette in his right hand, which leaves you wondering whether the person in the image is actually a right-handed man, such as the imposter Billy Shears. Then we move on to another very obvious and unsubtle clue, on, especially for the things on this list anyway, and behind the Beatles we can literally see a Volkswagen Beetle. So obviously there aren't going to be many stretches for the, for the symbolism to have some sort of meaning here. I mean, if you don't know what this particular car could have represented, then you really haven't been paying attention to this whole episode anyway. But the license plate of the quote-unquote Beetle reads 28 if, which is meant to have been Paul's age at the time of this album's release, had he actually survived. Actually, he'd be 27 at the time of the cover, but... Uh, quite a few theorists have covered this by pointing out that many Indian religions, nothing specific, just quote-unquote Indian religions, you know, religions that Paul must have picked up on in his time of the Maharishi, point out that one is considered one year old at the date of birth. So, in fact, he would have been 28 if. On the back of the cover, there are three distinctive dots below the phrase, The Beatles, possibly hinting at the fact that there are only three Beatles in this band. The crack that runs through the band's name also leads to the same obviously sound conclusion. Another quite creepy image from the reverse side of the cover, again, very close to the word Beatles, is that if you turn the image 90 degrees, that what can only be described as a fucking skull appears again, another friggin' skull. Like, I'm not making this up, and yeah, it ain't a perfect skull, but it's close enough, a skull's a skull. And finally, I just wanted to, I wanted to read word for word this extract from the Daily Mail's website. For those of you listening out there who don't know what the Daily Mail is, they're, of course, a newspaper in the UK. They are clearly a, quote-unquote, reputable news source, as indicated by this quote here. If the writing on the wall is split into sections, it conveys a cryptic message. Be at Les Abbey. In numerology, the following two letters, R and O, are the 18th and 15th letters in the alphabet. By adding this together, 33, and multiplying it by the number of letters 2, we get 66, the year that Paul is supposed to have died. 3 also represents the letter C, so 33 could stand for CC. CC is short for Cecilia. Other theories claiming that Paul was laid to rest at St. Cecilia's Abbey, a monastery in Ryde on the Isle of Wight. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't understand any of that either. Uh, moving on. Finally, we have the final album, which is Let It Be from 1970. Unfortunately, due to the ever-deteriorating functionality of the Beatles and the fact that Fall was becoming ever more estranged from the band to the point whereby the other three Beatles are siding with him against Alan Klein, the album cover really didn't have the same amount of attention as before. However, the band did manage to squeeze in a couple of little references to the demise of poor old Macca. The album cover is, of course, in funeral black, which which is the last grand attempt for the band to symbolise death, and it symbolises the band breaking up as well, so it is, it is very fitting. However, if you look at the four photos, the real clue is that John, George and Ringo are all looking off to the left, and Paul, standing alone once again, is looking directly at the viewer. Not only that, but the background colour of the other three is white, so the surviving three have a white innocence, you know, possible, you know, representing purity, but Paul's background is blood red, symbolising, well, again, Red, folks, normally isn't a good thing. It means death in this one. In this case, obviously, it, it, it doesn't symbolise the passions of romantic love. The background is blood red. It's only of Paul's head. Paul's head was decapitated. There would have been a lot of blood. Put two and two together, Paul is dead. Come to think of it, the, the very notion of letting it be, uh, you know, Paul asking us to let it be, could be a cryptic message from the fake fall and, the, and possibly even from the other three Beatles to literally tell people to stop pursuing the line of inquiry into Paul's death. 
Like, maybe at this point, at the height of the furore, especially after the release of Abbey Road, the Paul is Dead theory was gaining too much traction and the band, possibly facing pressure, now several years on from the death, were willing to put the whole thing aside and, with the breakup of the Beatles, just move on with their lives forever. And whilst the Beatles would never release a proper studio album again, as the classic quartet they were, they did actually still release some content after Lennon's death in 1980, and the band would eventually get back together with Fall to release Free as a Bird slash Real Love. And whilst I don't particularly want to get into all of the music videos of the Beatles on top of this episode, because then we'll just go on forever, really, and I'm going to be doing the Beatles music videos as part of my Paul videography at some point anyway, so I'm sure I might cover it then. If you go on to the music video and look at free as a bird and if you tilt the image 180 degrees one of the puddles looks suspiciously like Paul's face another decapitated head so we do have some time though and if the last category was and if the last category of evidence was anything to go by we don't have enough time to, to tackle another one of the big bad wolves of the Paul of the Dead tale but I did want to utilize this time especially if we are going to be doing this as a two-parter, to quickly touch on three of the smaller aspects involved in this conspiracy that caught my imagination in one way or another that I just had to talk about. Plus, I also felt that these ones, regardless of which side of the fence that I would ultimately come down upon, would feel kind of somewhat redundant after the three hours of heavy Beatles conspiracy chit-chat. But hey, let's jump right into this trio, because they are as oddball as they are random. The Bastard Child First up, and one of the most successful ways for a conspiracy to stay alive and active in the minds of the public is that every few years it needs to be fed. The story needs additions. Now, if you are a dutiful investigator, what you are really after is new hard evidence that helps prove your case either way. But a far more effective and easier method is to draw upon seemingly unrelated aspects of history and proving how it is all in fact part of the same spiderweb puzzle box game that is... Paul is dead. What I'm referring to I will call the bastard child theory. And no, this isn't some loose connection to the world of Westeros or anything, but it does seem to have that certain familial behind-the-scenes cutthroat nature that Game of Thrones certainly has. We all know that McCartney behind closed doors has been known to be an imposing figure, a forceful figure, a demanding figure, a, a, someone very difficult to work with, and an imposing figure backed up by a mahoosive, nigh-invincible legal team that has meant he's been pretty much untouchable as far as the common crazy person is concerned. But as we saw with the woman who claimed to be the daughter of the late, possibly murdered Diana, Princess of Wales, actually managed to secure an audience with Princes Harry, William and Charles. So anything is possible with enough conviction, I suppose. And with that in mind, let us discuss the bastard child of Paul McCartney. Now, shock of horrors to me, this was actually something that I had heard about before, years and years before doing this podcast. I must have, I must have read about it on, on the internet somehow. And... When I found one of the articles about it again, it all came flooding back to me in the world's dreariest, dullest example of a nostalgia rush ever. And the tale, mostly reported by the tabloids across the UK, started out as a simple yarn of a German woman by the name of Bettina Krishbin claiming that Paul, during his stint in Hamburg in those earliest days of the Silver Beatles and the Beatles, actually unbeknownst to himself, had fathered a child with her mother, the child being her, of course. Now, Macca is one rich sugar daddy, and there is a pretty penny for any legal heir to the McCartney fortune, and she would not be the first nor last person to try and claim parentage of one of the Fab Four. However, this story alone wouldn't have been enough to set off the bullshit detectors in many people's minds, but fortunately for the Paul is dead conspiracy heads, the story did admittedly get a little bit juicier. 
When Bettina Krishpin applied to have a paternity test done to prove once and for all whether Paul was her baby daddy or not, she got the results back. So, like, they actually agreed to go with it, which is actually kind of unprecedented. But she got the results back, and her and her lawyers, after careful inspection, launched a lawsuit against McCartney for faking the results of the paternity test. More specifically, she said that the cabal, or, you know, fall, had sent an imposter who, you know, purely faked the actual test with just his own blood and stuff, or even a literal doppelganger body double was sent in to do the test on his behalf. And since Billy Campbell Shears would not have the same original DNA of that Paul McCartney, the father of that daughter, would not match the daughter, thus proving that he is not Paul McCartney. Or that Paul McCartney is not the father of the daughter. Not sure which one to go with there. But yeah, she wanted the test. She gets the results back and they don't match the results of the of some of Paul McCartney's original blood tests. That's what's more suspicious. Now, does that mean that the cabal didn't have any of Paul's blood on hand and that they were hoping that they just wouldn't notice? This woman, in a kind of Da Vinci Code type way, is the only living heir to the real McCartney bloodline. And now she's just being brushed off as this crazy person. Probably because she is, and probably just because it's all bullshit, and maybe the tests weren't done badly, because years later, when she lost the lawsuit against Paul for faking the, the test, she's now got a new legal team, and now she's basically pursuing incompetence on the old lawyers, so maybe the incompetence was the idea that the tests were faked at all, and maybe that was all bullshit, and that's why she lost that case. Maybe Paul is, is her dad, but she's going about it the entirely wrong way. With this one, I thought it was just interesting, as it was a way of bringing something completely random and different in the conspiracy, and just forcing it into the narrative just to make it work. And it's like, oh, someone noticed that Paul possibly faked a blood test. Ah, oh, it has to be because it's part of the Paul is dead conspiracy, and it's because he is not really Paul McCartney, and... The, and it writes itself. Stuff like this, once you get that first initial hook of Paul has cheated on a blood test or faked a blood test, you can add whatever Paul is dead element you want. And it works. Saint Paul. Another delightfully where the fuck did that come from corner of this story comes to you once again from the music industry. But this time, rather being a part of the rich wider narrative of the Paul is Dead story, it is instead an example of a very incidental set of Forrest Gump-esque circumstances and how a very peripheral relationship to the Beatles can take a life of its own once the conspiracy virus settles into its host forever. There was a record that was released at the height of the Paul is Dead panic, and its subject matter, surprisingly enough, was pertained to one Saint Paul. Paul being our Paulie, of course, and the Saint part, well, in order to be made a Saint, you have to be dead first. So you, you can see how the Paul is Deadites put two and two together for this one. Terry Knight was a radio personality and record producer in Detroit who formed a band called The Pack and later began performing solo. In early 1969, Knight travelled to London with his friend, the iconic pixie cut fashion mo model Twiggy. Apparently, ugh, I hate that word. Apparently, the story goes that the two of them were travelling together in hopes of joining Apple Records, but that the trip, after, you know, an audience with the Beatles, went nowhere. Well, not for both of them. I actually knew who Twiggy was whilst writing this. However, Terry Knight did not leave without a lot of inspiration and material to base a song on. Whilst he was hanging about and milling around Apple Corps HQ, he was witness to the bitter and abusive infighting that, that the Beatles had been conducting amongst themselves by that point. Perhaps something else was let slip as well. Perhaps he found out something that he was not meant to know. Perhaps someone said something that they shouldn't have whilst Terry was ever present and they just weren't aware. 
Just after Knight returned to Detroit, the Beatles hired Alan Klein to represent them behind Paul's back, and oh shit, let's not get into all of that again. But as a result of his experiences with the Beatles, Knight did in fact go on to record a song about Paul, which he titled Saint Paul. It was released on May. It was released in May of 1969, and the whole song is basically one big log to fuel the fire between all the Beatles. And the whole song is basically one big cap capital. And the whole song is basically just one big corporate capital fuel to the fire of both the imminent Beatles breakup, but also the Paul is dead hysteria, and that will help sell the record. Really, um, I, I I hate to look at it that cynically, but you know, writing a song about the Beatles is is always going to get some attention, isn't it? But that being said, the song itself is actually very interesting. And I was initially going to kind of write it off as a bit of a nothing song, but after giving it its fair due, I really have to give it the full Paul or nothing critical treatment. So I'll just do that for you now really quick. I looked into the sky Everything was high Higher than it seemed to be to me Standing by the sea Thinking I was free Did I hear you call Or was I dreaming then St. Paul You knew it all at all Something had gone wrong They couldn't hear I don't know anything about Knight or his career, but what I can say is that this song is very ambitious and it has many moving pieces that it's trying to balance and blend together to different levels of effect. The opening movements are obviously very Beatles-esque in their composition and it's clear that it's a style that Knight is intentionally aping for a specific effect. In fact, it's so Beatles-esque that I noticed it very, very early on and I was feeling very smarmy and clever that I felt that it was similar to A Day in the Life and then the song literally name drops A Day in the Life straight up and that just dashed all of my ego in that moment and the song in one of its trippier more fluid like moments that it kind of fleets in and out of transitions into, into this like psychedelic Abbey Road level medley of night singing renditions of of course A Day in the Life, a Ringo-esque version of Hey Jude but it's Hey Paul, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, She Loves You and Love Is All You Need and you know what fuck me does he put it together rather well.
There's also a little fill early on that has a little hint of the medley where he goes like, let me take you down, 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 down. And obviously that's going to lead into Strawberry Fields Forever. Like, obviously this is a song written by a massive Beatles fan and it's a fantastic tribute to the band whilst also creating something very new out of the disparate pieces. Of course, that's all very surface. The non-specifically Beatles uh, cover lyrics, however, are a little more cryptic and complex as it seems to be basically one big lamentation over the collapse of the Beatles, but specifically, and it clearly singles out Paul. It is a very mournful song in its tone. It feels like it is longing, it is calling out for something that is no longer there. And it's clear that Knight sympathises with Paul's plight deeply. Knight evidently was aware that the Beatles were disintegrating due to the fact that you know, Paul wasn't fucking Paul. Knight was aware of this and he is writing an ode to the Paul that once was. Let's just go over some of these lyrics just quickly. I looked into the sky, everything was high, higher than it seemed to be to me, standing by the sea, thinking I was free. This to me seems like it, this would, would just be the final thoughts of the real Sir James Paul McCartney just before he died and what he would be experiencing as his soul was leaving his body in death. Did I hear you call, or was I dreaming then, St. Paul? You knew it all along, something had gone wrong. They couldn't hear your song of sadness in the air, while they were crying out, beware, your flowers and long hair, while you and Sergeant Pepper saw the writing on the wall. Now, obviously this verse references something going wrong. Duh, I wonder what that could be. But it also seems to consistently hint at, you know, Paul being in a level of knowing and had warning about his situation. The writing was on the wall and it lends itself to the idea that Paul was perhaps chosen, perhaps he was on the run from something. He was specifically picked out to be murdered or, or even worse, sacrificed beforehand and that in some way his death was inevitable. You save one minute of your life to the future. They said you've got dues to pay today. You say it's a fool who plays it cool, sir. And if tomorrow comes, you'll know they all hear St. Paul say. The line of Paul having dues to pay is a very evocative idea indeed, almost like it's implying that Paul in some ways was to blame for his own demise or committed some sort of crime against the cabal that would be punishable in this shadowy world of elites that would result in his own execution. You had a different view. Hey there, Paul, what's new? Did Judas talk to you or did you put us on? Is there something wrong? It's taken you too long to change the world. So Isaac Newton said it had to fall. Hey, St. Paul. And finally, we, we have an allusion to the biblical character of Judas, the man who fucking betrayed Jesus. Who is Knight referring to here? Who was the Judas that got Paul killed? Was it one of the Beatles? Was it someone else he knew? Again, Knight references something going wrong, keeping up that motif of tragedy. And then the line about Isaac Newton, who himself was a Mason, just as a little side note, seems to hint at the inevitability again of Paul's death. Perhaps I just don't understand the gravity of the situation. This record was a bit of an anomaly really. I mean Knight himself says that the song is simply about the breakup of the Beatles and his own failed attempts at establishing a relationship with the real McCartney. Maybe Macca was his way in and the extra exposure to Paul helped soften Knight to sympathising with McCartney's own version of events rather like Let It Be. The song itself was initially met with a cease and desist letter from the Beatles lawyers, not because it was part of some conspiracy, but because the song was in massive breach of most copyright laws, with the full 5 minute and 30 seconds version with all the Beatles stuff being trimmed and edited down to a much drearier 4 minute copyright approved version, rather like YouTube today. 
This new version was also printed with a credit to both Lennon and McCartney, which only went to further the, the rumours that this was involved with the Paul is Dead conspiracy, as it looked like the Cabal had actively acted to censor the music and then handed the power back to themselves in order to silence Knight. But that's not what it was, was it? It was simply a song written by a very talented member of the rock and roll establishment and community who used his know-how to create what is essentially the ultimate fanboy mixtape of all of his favourite Beatles songs. All whilst, through the medium of song, trying to make one last possible last-ditch attempt to reach out to the real Paul and make some connection with him. Which is all a little sad when you come to think about it, really. It was a lovely story, this one. But that's all it was. A story. Ringo Breaks the Silence. It's rather rare to come across an element of Paul is Dead out there in the quote-unquote real world. And when it does happen, you realise how rare it is. And you never forget it. This may have been the first example of me coming across some Paul is Dead media before I even really knew what Paul is Dead ever was. I barely even listened to the Beatles by this point, and I'd certainly not even heard that Paul McCartney was even a person, let, let alone that he died. And the funny thing is, this is the very piece of evidence that actually inspired this episode in the first place. I mean, I always knew I was going to have to do a Paul is Dead episode at some point, but hey, since I saw this out there, I thought, fuck it, why not? Let's do it. And this inspiration for this Titanic episode was born out of just trawling through Reddit, Beatles groups on Facebook and clickbait dens. And whilst I was several hours deep into one of those searches, I stumbled across a very tantalising title indeed. It was about Ringo, it had Paul in the title, and something about someone being dead. I mean, I know you're not supposed to fall for these things, but I did, in fact, fall for my animal nature, and I did indeed click. The nature of this article was was about Ringo chiming in very, very recently on the Paul is Dead fracas. The somewhat infamous article was only very recently spread widely across the internet, emanating from a website called World News Daily Report. Ringo seemingly had snapped. He had fucking broken and had given a very detailed expose description that would seek to put to rest all of this Paul is Dead stuff. And I'm going to read to you a few excerpts from it now. And brace yourselves for this one, folks, because, well... Firstly, because it's pretty crazy, but secondly, it's because I got to do the Ringo impression. In an exclusive interview with the Hollywood Inquirer, Mr. Starr explained that the real Paul McCartney had died in a car crash on November 9th, 1966, after an argument during a Beatles recording session. To spare the public from grief, the Beatles replaced him with a man named William Shears Campbell, who was the winner of a Paul McCartney lookalike contest, and who had happened to have the same kind of jovial personality as Paul. When Paul died, we all panicked. We didn't know what to do, and Brian Epstein, our manager, suggested we hire Billy Shears as a temporary solution. It was supposed to only last a week or two, but time went by and nobody seemed to notice, so we kept playing along. Billy turned out to be a pretty good musician, and he was able to perform almost better than Paul. The only problem was, is that he couldn't get along with John at all. He continues, We felt pretty guilty about all the deception. We wanted to tell the world the truth, but we were afraid of the reactions that it would provoke. We thought the whole planet was going to hate us for all the lies that we told, so we kept lying but sending subtle clues to relieve our consciousness. When the first rumours finally began about the whole thing, we felt very nervous and started fighting a lot with each other. At some point, it was too much for John, and he decided to leave the band. Wow, that sounds pretty fucking conclusive if you ask me, folks. Ringo has come right out with it. He said it. 
Can't put that genie back in the bottle. Can't put that back in the box. Perhaps since, you know, he's in the latter stages of his life, like those guys who worked on the Titanic or the Kennedy assassination, he's come out with a fuck it attitude and has decided to spill the beans. This is pretty unprecedented, really. And if it's true, then it's going to bring the whole house of cards down, right? Well, in the words of the mighty Spartan king to the Athenians, who said that if they get in, they will massacre the people, I must too reply, if. Something smells around here that f comes from a field and rhymes with Schmolschmidt. Unfortunately, the answer to this one, despite all the furore and the hubbub that it caused at the time, has a very simple answer and didn't even take more than 10 seconds of googling to find out the truth behind it. A quick trip to the only possibly slightly biased fact-checking site Snopes and you will see that this website, the World News Daily Report, is actually a whole lot of horse poo-poo. To quote Snopes directly, WNDR is an entertainment website that does not publish factual articles. A disclaimer states that all the stories published by the website are for entertainment purposes only. Yep, it was all bullshit. All of it. And that's the final thought I thought I wanted to leave you with, folks. Again, I'm not coming down on either side of the argument until the conclusion of the next episode. Wink, wink, of course. But if you were to walk away from this episode with a certain notion that something, despite all the supposed evidence that you've been given before you, is in fact bullshit? Well, then maybe I've done a public good. And there we are, folks. That brings us to the end of this first part of Paul or Nothing's Paul is Dead exploration. It's already been a pretty crazy ride so far with a lot of very <coughs> compelling evidence that is very difficult to ignore, as well as some more spurious and confusing elements, I suppose. There is no real true way to interpret a lot of this stuff, but it is clear that there is something about it that is just irresistible to the human brain. I mean, we've been picking away at this mystery for, what, 50 years now? And with the upcoming release of McCartney's Egypt Station, with its Illuminati pyramid imagery, we will soon have another mysterious chapter to add to this story. Next time, we will cover the lyrics, backwards lyrics, photographic evidence, and uncover the real truth and my opinions on this whole Paul is Dead mystery and where it came from. Thank you very much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. This has been Paul or Nothing. Find us on Patreon, Podbean, iTunes, YouTube, Twitter, and email us at paulmccartypod at gmail.com. I'm going to do a shorter outro this time, folks, because this is part one of two, and it feels a little bit rude to make you put up with me saying goodbye twice, but also because if I keep talking much longer, I'm going to come down on this conspiracy much harder than I mean to and probably let slip something that I shouldn't. <clears throat> This has been a fucking great episode to make for you all, despite how fucking long it's taken to come out. I'm sure Daniel Laney is already playing us out right now, so let's wrap it up. I hope you've enjoyed this madness, this half of the madness. I hope you are looking forward to part two right around the corner. I hope to see you again very soon. I am your host, Sam Wiles. This has been another bonus episode of Paul or Nothing. It's been a pleasure. Peace and love. Peace and love.
Ja, 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 ja,